0: we are back in Philippians again tonight but take heart this is the last time we'll be there for a little while if you've been coming at all routinely you'll know that we've been in Philippians since September 13th when we started our regular worship here this fall and uh, we are gonna take a break because this next Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent we'll have the four Sundays of Advent together Advent is a season of waiting a season that has a, a dual focus upon the, the second coming of Christ and also upon his first coming in humility um, as a baby in the manger. And so we're going to spend some time looking at themes related to Advent in the coming four weeks. As we've been going along in, in Philippians, I'm concerned at one level that we might be getting a, a too, too much of a microscopic view. Our, our sights, our scopes are being set too narrowly in one sense. So what I want to do as we wrap up this section tonight out of Philippians 2 is is to, um, to broaden the scope again, to, to move back out and make sure that we're understanding what Paul is saying to the Philippians and therefore to us uh, in a broader context, in the context of the bigger picture of the scripture and the narrative that it, uh, that it gives to us. Let me start by saying that there's an endless, and I would say in some ways a futile, quest that is universal among men and women that have ever lived on the face of the earth. This is the quest for life or for happiness, however you want to define it. It's the quest for for meaning or for joy, for some kind of reality to life that just seems to be ever evading our grasp. Blaise Pascal, a 17th century French mathematician, theologian, and general brilliant person, um, he said this, he said, all men seek happiness, there are no exceptions. However however different the means they employ, they may employ, they all strive towards this goal. The the will never takes the least step except to that end. That's the statement that everything that we do, the reason that we do what we do, the reason that we will what we will or that we dream what we dream, that we hope for what we hope for is ultimately because we think that through that we'll be happier. We'll be more satisfied. There'll be more Um, more kind of goodness to our lives. That's why we do what we do. It's why some people go off to war, Pascal continues in his quote, and it's why why some people don't go to war um, and choose not to to engage. It's why you could go a number of different directions. It's why you might be in school right now and working hard because there in some way is a promise that as you work hard at what you're doing uh, and gain knowledge that this will deliver some kind of good to you, some kind of benefit. Uh, and I think if we were to, to be honest and examine our lives, we'd say, yeah, there's a lot of truth to this. That the reason I do what I do is because I think it will be, in a sense, good or happiness-producing in some way. But this pursuit is so often unfulfilling, isn't it? It's so often unfulfilling. There's a, a kind of emptiness and a, and a craving that remains no matter how much we we get what we think we were pursuing. Let me give you this picture. Now, since moving to Boston in the last I guess it was about seven months ago, seven and a half months ago. I have come to be a regular customer because it's unavoidable of Dunkin' Donuts. Um, And I do this most often with my daughters as a date when we're giving Mandy some time, we'll go there. So yeah, thanks for the Dunkin' Donuts cup. Um, Imagine yourself walking into a Dunkin' Donuts. And I've actually become really, I've warmed up to the the Boston cream donut, I think because I'm in Boston. Imagine yourself as a fan of the Boston cream donut, walking into Dunkin' Donuts and and ordering a dozen Boston cream donuts and sinking your teeth into a Boston cream donut and yet there's no vanilla custard on the inside or whatever it is on the inside. Just a disappointment. (laughs) So you put that one down and you take up the next one and you take a bite out of the the, the donut and there's nothing on the inside. With just as much hope and expectation, you do this a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, all the way up to a twelfth time, only to find yourself dissatisfied at the end. I wanted to use that just to illustrate the nature of our pursuit of happiness and joy in the world around us, in the things that we see around us. We take a bite, but there's nothing in the middle. This has been the way it's been from the beginning, at least in a biblical perspective. The reason for this kind of futility to our pursuit of happiness is that we do it in a way <clears throat> outside of our design. We do it in a way that's, that's ignorant of or that it just disregards at some level God, the one who made us. And as long as we're pursuing life and joy in some way on our own, not as creatures who've been made with a particular design to function a certain way, But as gods, little g, who think that we can define and and determine our own life in our own way, however we want to pursue it, we're going to find a level of futility and and emptiness to what we do. That's the the Christian claim. That's the claim of the church. So we can try hard. We can try hard. We can bite in, bite in, but to no avail. And this is the way it's been from the beginning. If you think about Genesis 3, the, the story of Adam and Eve, the, the, the beginning of the entrance. And one of the ways that Christians describe this whole phenomenon in the world of pursuing life outside of God is we use the word sin. But the way this phenomenon began was, was through um, the serpent showing up and saying to, saying to Eve, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from this tree of knowledge and good and evil? He says, actually, if you eat from this tree, you're going to get what you're looking for. And she says, oh, this looks really good to me. And so she leaves the way of God, pursues her own way, brings Adam into it, and the two fall together. And we live now in the consequences of that. But from the beginning, this has been the nature of the deception of this way of life, pursuing life outside of God. So Paul, back to Paul for just a moment. Paul's audacious claim here in Philippians and to this church in Philippi and really to us as well, is that um, true life is found in Christ all these other ways to pursue it, that it's found in Christ alone. He says it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Don't get lost on those big words. The idea is that Christ is life. Christ is life. Jews demand signs. So all the religious energy in the world of looking for truth and meaning. Greeks search for wisdom. So all the effort of humankind from the beginning to find knowledge and contentment in what we know and our mastery of our nature. You could sum up all of that energetic pursuit by Paul here saying that is obsolete. That's rendered ineffective in this critical heart issue of life, but that it's Christ crucified. This foolish message of a, of a crucified Messiah that is the key to all of life, wherever you find yourself, whatever you think about Jesus, this is the key. And that's why it's an audacious claim is, is what he's saying is this, is this is the answer that everybody's been looking for, this, this gospel this good news of what God has done in Christ Jesus. And so he says, and this is really the audacious claim. He says, so that's true. He says, now you Philippians, as you embrace this gospel, as you embrace this Lord Jesus in your life, as you lay down your lives and follow his ways and not yours, then you, as as we've talked about in weeks past, as you pursue the life of a worthy citizen of the gospel, or as we looked at last week, as you work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, as you pursue these things, then your your lives, you yourselves will shine as lights in this world. In other words, you yourselves will have the life for which everyone else is looking. And it will shine in you and through you to the world around you. Now he says this to a kind of a group of, of, of ragtag followers of Jesus. And remember back when he's writing, Christianity is not a dominant world power or a a thing that has, you know, um, two thirds or a third of the world's population that says it subscribes to it. It's, It's relatively an unknown thing and it's a persecuted thing. It's a minority. And even at this minority stage in these early days, Paul's saying, no, actually, as you live this life under Jesus, you will shine as lights in the world. Your lives will be radiant with life. And joy. I want to look at what this light this light actually is. What, what can we say about this light that shines, this light that shines in the world? First, it's a derivative light. It's a light that doesn't belong to any one of us by virtue of who we are in and of ourselves. It's a light that's given to us by Jesus and is lived out through us, the life of Jesus shining through us. I have the, the illustration that came to mind this week as I was sitting in my office which is sort of tucked in behind the Hancock Tower. And then there's another big building right in front of me. I don't know the name of it. It's kind of got a half circle on the top of it. And at one point, all of a sudden, I was looking down reading, all of a sudden there was just a lot of light in my office, a lot more than normal. And I looked up and that half dome, which kind of looks like the top of that window back there, that half dome had been hit by the sun. And the sun was just reflecting brightly off of that half dome into my room, into my office. That's the picture of the follower of Jesus shining as a light in the world. It's not our own light. It's a light that comes from somewhere, someone else, from Jesus, in us and then through us to the world. That's the picture. It's a derivative light. It's a light because it's ultimately, this is the second thing about the light, it's restored us to our design. Look at verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted Generation. What Paul is saying by these words of a crooked and twisted generation is that actually life outside of God, life when we live it on our own terms, life when we pursue it in something other than God, other than the way we were designed, leads to this kind of crookedness and twistedness. Another way of translating that word is perverted. It's something that was meant one way, but instead of being used in the way it was meant, it's being used in a completely different and foreign way. So instead of actually becoming a radiant light to the world, this life becomes a kind of black hole, an end that that stuffs up everything good and becomes frustrated. And what Paul is saying is that when we come to Jesus, when we begin to work out the salvation, when God has worked in us, what happens is we're restored to our design. We're put back to to the way that we were made so that actually now we can become a conduit of the radiance and glory and light of God in our lives and through our lives, into the world. So that's the way this is working. So you get these words of, um, he says in verse 14, he gives you something not to do. We've been talking a lot about our response to the gospel. He says, don't do anything with grumbling or questioning or complaining or bickering, however you want to talk about it, that you might be what? Blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish. Think of those words, blameless, innocent, without blemish. Being restored to your design as a creature, means becoming holy. Light and life come through the holiness of the people of God. When we hold on and cling to the ways, of, the ways of life outside of God, i.e. sin, we actually diminish. But when we walk in the restored path that God has made for us in Christ Jesus, we become light and life. So the second thing about this light is it's the restoration of each one of us back to our design so that we're not frustrated anymore. We're actually functioning and living in the way that we were created to live. The third thing to say, well, let me say actually on this this thing about holiness. Let me quote something from G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. He says, the outer ring of Christianity is is a rigid guard of ethical abnegations and professional priests. But inside that inhuman guard, you will find the old human life dancing like children and drinking wine like men. For Christianity is the only frame for pagan freedom. But in the modern philosophy, the case is opposite. It is its outer ring that is obviously artistic and emancipated. Its despair is within. What he's saying is that it's, it's only as we come into this life of Jesus, which he says is kind of on the outside, looks kind of formal and rigid and inhuman, kind of oppressive, and it certainly does look like that if, if, if you're kind of enjoying your freedoms uninhibited. But as you, come, as you look at it, it sort of looks that way, but as you get on the inside, life is there, an abundance of life, a real life, a flowing life, dancing like children. I have three children and I watch them dance, especially the two little girls. And it's just the most beautiful life giving Blissful thing that you can see is, you know, little Chloe or Savannah just kind of bouncing around in joy and, and, and spinning in, in their, their ballerina costumes and things like that. And that's the picture that we get of one who's been restored to this image of God, this, this place of holiness, without blemish, blameless, innocent. So that's the, the, the one aspect, another aspect of light. The third thing I want to say is that this light, shining as lights in the world, is life. Very simply, it's life. It's life, it's true life, it's abundant life. It's, it's life that's full of joy and full of peace. It's life that's healthy and robust and, and, and it's got substance to it. It's not a shadow of the real thing, it is the real thing. It's not longing for something else. It is what it is, it's, it's life, it's joy. And it's not separating in, from the world and judging the world, but it's entering into the world and among and in the world. This is what this kind of life is. So in other words, it's not Pharisaical. This was the kind of nature of the Pharisees. The life that they had was this life that was squeaky clean on the outside. You know, Mr. Do-Good looked great, everything was fine, but on the inside, there was a rottenness. There was a a core that was rotten and, and bad. And this kind of life that shines as lights among the world, this kind of life starts from the inside, from the heart and bursts out in joy and life and peace. Let me illustrate this with a couple of quotes from Langdon Gilkey's book, Shantung Compound. I've quoted from it recently. Obviously, you've read it recently, so you get to hear from it. Um, but he gives these two pictures of, two, uh, of one group of people and then of an individual that show this kind of joy and life, that this light that we have in Christ is. He says the Catholic fathers, they're a big group of Catholic uh, monks that have been put in this internment camp. This is in China in World War II. Um, Westerners were put in an internment camp, about 1,400 of them for two and a half years. Uh, And they weren't poorly treated, but they didn't have a lot. And so a lot of true colors came out. He said, the Catholic fathers possessed a religious and moral seriousness free of spiritual pride. They communicated to others not how holy they were, but their inexhaustible acceptance and warmth toward the more worldly and wayward laymen. Nothing and no one seemed to offend them or shock them. No person outraged their moral sense. The fathers mixed amiably with anybody and everybody, with men accustomed to drinking, gambling, swearing, wenching, even taking dope. Men replete with all major and minor vices, yet they remained unchanged in their own character by this intimate personal contact with the world. Somehow they seemed able to accept and even to love the world as it was. And in this acceptance, the presence of their own strength gave new strength to our wayward world. Great picture of the redemptive light and life of Christ shining in and through people that doesn't set set apart. As Paul says here in Philippians two, that you may be lights shining in the world and that you might be without blemish in the midst of the world. So you're very much in, it doesn't pull apart and judge, but it enters in and embraces. And the strength of this kind of holiness and life and joy is contagious to the people around them. There's another picture that he gives of, this is of Eric Little, the, the man who was in Chariots of Fire, was actually in this camp and died in the camp. It says, the man who, who more than anyone brought about the solution of the teenage problem was Eric Little. The teenagers were getting into all kinds of trouble because they didn't have anything to do. It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. Often in an evening of that last year, I, headed for some pleasant rendezvous with my girlfriend, would pass the game room and peer in to see what the missionaries had cooking for the teenagers. As often as not, Eric Little would be bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, warm, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the minds and imaginations of those penned-up youths. If anyone could have done it, he could. A track man, he won the 440 in the Olympics for England in the 20s, and then had come to China as a missionary, In camp, he was in his middle 40s, lithe and springy of step, and above all, overflowing with good humor and love of life. He was aided by others, to be sure, but it was Eric's enthusiasm and charm that carried the day with the whole effort. Shortly before the camp ended, he was stricken suddenly with a brain tumor and died the same day. The entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. A great picture of of one who had the light of Christ shining in him and through him, and this life being this light being joy and life and peace that entered among the world. And lastly, just to say, this light is missional. It's not just for our own life. It's not just so that we can have something wonderful, but but we shine as lights among the world, in the world, to bring life to others. It's missional. So we talk about our neighborhood groups in this community, these groups that we have around the city that are meant for living life in an open way among the world, among people, having meetings and things in, in, in pubs and in um, you know public places and Starbucks so that we can live our life together openly among the world and let our light shine to the world. I want to end just by asking, how does this light take root in us? How does this light actually become um, radiant through us. There's a problem, isn't there, really, for for many of us, that these initial good impulses to to serve God and to give our lives over to Him, um, to live a life of holiness and justice and mercy with all that we have and all of our energy lead in some ways to this kind of energy-less, uninspired, self-improvement, world-improvement attempt. In other words, we 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 have these great hopes and dreams to be living life vibrantly and all of a sudden we find ourselves on some kind of um some some kind of just apathetic journey through the world. Still kind of pursuing these ideas of of love and of holiness, but not really sure why. There's a great great danger in this. It's kind of the danger of the older brother in Luke 15. He's kind of been with the father for a long time and doesn't really realize the the treasure that he holds right before him. The, the, The key that Paul gives us is in verse 16. Look at verse 16, the beginning. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, verse 15, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. The way we address this issue of light or of lack of light or of no light in us or of apathy in us is not by some kind of attempt at self improvement. The glorious good news of the gospel is that God has done something once and for all, permanently and forever. And Christianity is not about self improvement, it's not about self help, it's about what God has done. And it's this word of life, which is code language for Paul for the gospel the good news of what God has done in Christ that becomes the animator, the the only way of motivating the heart of the believer to live in a way that shines among the world, the light of Christ. It's this gospel summed up in this little way of God has, we are, can you believe it? God has done it in Christ on the cross. We are his beloved by his grace alone. Can you believe it? Can you believe that God has made you his own? That he 's made you his own, the way of holiness that is the light that shines into the world arises only out of and is only arising from the native soil of the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. The best motivation, the, the best motivation for this kind of living comes and arises out of this constant reflection at the beginning of every day. The beginning of our lives and the beginning of every day arises from this reality that God has. We are. Can you believe it? The best weapon against sin and the best weapon for holiness in the life of any human being is a deep awareness that though we were worthy of judgment, though we were worthy of God's coming upon us with great wrath, God chose to to, to bring that wrath upon himself in a mysterious and stupefying way. God put it upon his own son upon the cross. And so we look to the cross and see at the cross, this is the judgment of my attempts to live life outside of who God is. This is God's judgment upon that. But it's not falling upon me. It's falling upon Christ. Christ. And all of a sudden I find that in the cross I see as well the reminder of the mercy and the forgiveness and the love that the, that the God who made the heavens and the earth has for me. Has, has for me. For me very personally. For you very personally. Wherever you find yourself right now tonight. This love is for you. This mercy is for you. This forgiveness is for you. And as we see this love and the larger story of which it's a part, of God's wonderful work of new creation in the world and our having been given an inheritance in this with Christ, as we see this kind of love, we're propelled to holiness. We're propelled to working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're propelled to living as worthy citizens of the gospel of Christ. If there's no light in and through our lives, if there's no real life and joy We don't turn as Christians and begin to preach a kind of message of behavioral modification only. We do say repent. We say give up those things of living life your own way according to your own terms as your own God and lay down your life again and embrace this reality and this truth that God has, we are. Can you believe it? This truth of the gospel at work. And it's the people who are intoxicated by this gospel literally drunk on this love of God that will become the light shining among the dark and and twisted world. So this is how this light begins to take root in us. This is the claim of Christianity. Yes, you have to give up some things. You have to give up living life in your your own ways. You have to give up some things that might actually be really precious and dear to you, your pleasure, your comfort, your knowledge, your reputation. Yeah, you have to give those things up give up things that, that may be dear. And, and these things to you may, may feel normal because they are normal in the world around us. They're normal in a world that's, that's twisted what was made to be straight. But then as we give them up, when the light of Christ shines in the world through his people and you brush up against it, all of a sudden something doesn't feel the same anymore. All of a sudden, that normalness to the life that you've been living and the the life that people around you have been living feels like it's maybe not really what it's supposed to be. And you brush up against the light of Jesus in people like Eric Little and people like the Catholic fathers in this camp. And you see that something's different. Something's alive. Something's been awakened in the heart. And you can't go back to what's normal. This is the whole offer that Christianity that Jesus makes to the people that he has made is that for those who say, I can't, I'm not trying anymore, I trust in you and I give my life to you, that he resounds with this phrase, God has done it. You are his children. Can you believe it? Amen.